week I was uh, sorting through some old papers and files and I came across a big thick file folder that uh, I sort of inherited when my folks uh, moved out of their house. Um, it was a file that my mother had kept on me, you know, <laughs> kind of like Hoover used to keep files on JFK and all. She kept a file on me, this big thick file, and it had uh, all kinds of different things, letters I had written to her and cards that I would given her over the years and some articles that I had written for ministry and different things, just things that she uh, had some sentimental attachment to, some newspaper clippings at times that I got in the paper. And I came across uh, my report card from my senior year in high school. And so I'm reading through my report card. I don't remember if I ever saw this report card. Maybe I just for forgot all of this. But the reporting process allowed teachers to choose from a variety of pre-selected phrases. So if they wanted to add notes to your report card, there would be these, these phrases that they could choose from. <coughs> I had not noticed this before. But virtually all of my teachers chose the same two phrases. They all said, student is a pleasure to have in class. Student is not working up to potential. And in fairness, looking back, I can say they were absolutely right. It was my senior year. I uh, was a good student. I was a very capable student. I was really good at taking tests. And I was a pretty good writer. And so I could pretty much make my way through all of my classes without exerting all that much effort. I still got good grades. I, I did pretty well. But in my mind, I sort of graduated high school after my sophomore year. I was just kind of done. And so I'm floating along. So definitely uh, my senior year in high school, I was a pleasure to have in class because I was raised to be respectful. I had a good relationship with my teachers. But I was definitely not trying. I was not working hard, and I was not working up to my potential. Now, we, we have teachers in the room who will probably uh, concur with me that there are a few things more frustrating than a student who's not prepared to work up to their potential. Uh, it's difficult to have a student who has a hard time grasping the material. That can be a frustrating process, helping them figure things out when they're struggling. But uh, as a homeschooling parent, I would say it's more frustrating to me to have a child that you know is capable of much more who chooses to just sort of slide <laughs> through the material. That was me, and so I had to be very patient with my own children <laughs> in, in retrospect. Uh, as a minister, and I have had a lot of different roles as a minister, a family minister and youth minister and, and a family counselor, and in all of those roles, I would say one of the more frustrating things for me is recognizing all the families that are not living up to their potential. And I don't mean that they're bad families. Quite often they're really good families, really great families. You know, we, we for most of us, a family is one of the most important things in our life, perhaps the most important thing in our life. It's a source of 
deep love and deep joy in spite of the fact that it also comes with some considerable sorrows. I mean, there are pains and there are losses that are kind of inevitable when you love other people that much. So for the most part, families are a pleasure. But I would say that very few of our families are living up to their potential. And I think that's in large part because we no longer even recognize what that potential is. Most have lost sight of the greater purpose. And that greater purpose is what we've been talking about, to impress God's nature upon the upcoming generations. We can still have happy families, and a lot of people do. But the family itself kind of becomes its own end. It is its own purpose. If we can have children and they can grow up and be successful and have children of their own and we can enjoy our grandchildren, then, then we've succeeded in all that we need to do. We have a happy family. And yet there's so much more potential to the family as it was designed by God. It's not unlike the church, which is modeled after the family. The church is first and foremost a family. Not an organization or an institution as much as it is a family. Or at least that's what it's intended to be. And yet churches can lose sight of their greater purpose. And they can be a positive experience for people, a positive uh, impact on the community. But the church can kind of become its own purpose. We exist in order to make sure that we'll continue to exist. We can supply connection. We can supply a sense of community to people. We can provide them with some ideas about morality. We can even give them a sense of identity and yet still be shy of this greater purpose for which we were created. See, the family and the church are intended as disciple-making organisms. They are living things, and as living things, they have been designed by God to reproduce in kind. And it works extremely well, for better or for worse. We reproduce in kind. The intent of family is that we will lovingly, deliberately be disciples and make disciples. Whether we're talking about your household or your church, that is the purpose. That is the potential. Most families, even Christian families, have missed that this is their purpose. And we've been lulled into this false belief that the schools will take on the primary responsibility for educating our children and the churches will take on the primary responsibility for making believers of them. But of course this isn't true. We have to be proactive. These days we have to be proactive in protecting our children 
from all the indoctrination they're liable to encounter in public schools, or even private schools for that matter. And we have to be deliberate about making disciples of them, about teaching them values and morals and teaching them faith. Everything we do in families, be it your household or your church, everything is a message. You never get to be off your guard. You're always sending a message whether you intend to or not. Everything is a message. Whatever we pay attention to, that sends a message about what's important. Whatever we disregard, that sends a message about what's not important. Ephesians 6 and 4 says fathers, and, and really, you read that because, because in translation, we're talking about uh, uh, translating from a language in which when you're speaking to a group of both men and women, you address it in the masculine form. So really, we could read this parents. It applies in some ways specifically to dads, but more generally, parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think that's fascinating. That the opposite of exasperation, the opposite of anger, the opposite of frustrating your children is to raise them in the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is the ethos and the habitus of, dis of a disciple-making family. So ethos means the beliefs and the values that shape a group of people. And habitus is the collective assumptions and practices of those people. What are their habits? What do they habitually do that reinforces their ethos? So for families that are committed to the way of the Lord, the life and the teaching and the example of Jesus are the principle and the practice of how we exist as a family. Let me give you an example of how this works. <clears throat> My household, we are a Marvel family. So when it comes to our choices about superhero movies, we choose Marvel. We don't have anything against DC Comics. As a matter of fact, we'll go watch a DC Comics superhero movie, and we will hope that it will be good. We simply know that it probably won't because we're a Marvel household and we are committed to all things Marvel. So if my children have superhero posters on their walls, they will almost inevitably be Marvel superheroes. If we're going to dress up as a Marvel superhero at Halloween or a superhero at Halloween, it will be a Marvel superhero. If you're sitting around with us at dinner one night and you hear us rattling off movie quotes, they're probably from a Marvel movie. Our ethos is that of a Marvel family. And it is reflected in our habitus. It shows up in what we say, how we act, and what we do. Now, I realize that's kind of a silly example, 
But this is what we're looking for. We're looking for the family to have an ethos of being followers of Jesus and for that ethos to be reflected in our habitus. This is what we believe, and here is how those beliefs are manifest in who we are and how we act. What do we really believe about Jesus? And what is the evidence that we actually believe what we say we believe? I tell you this as a preacher, as a guy who gets paid to talk. Our words will never be as important as our example. And our words only carry value if they are matched by how we live, what we do. So my words will only carry gravity if you believe that I live them. If you think I'm up here lying to you, if you think I'm just telling you what you're, I'm supposed to tell you, but I have a whole different life somewhere else, you can easily discount everything that I say. The same goes for us as families, and it goes for us as church families. Last week, I told you that the supremacy of Jesus is the only reasonable foundation upon which believers can build their families. And last week we talked primarily about the form of family that God created and how that impacts living under the supremacy of Jesus. But this, this week I want to focus primarily on function, the function of our household families and our church families. And Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, he breaks it down basically like this. Jesus is supreme. Jesus comes first in everything. So, you're going to put to death the earthly things. And then, he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is, of course, a message that Paul gives to the church. But since the church is modeled after the family, this could just as easily be a message that Paul delivers directly to our households. This is a message about what a godly family looks like. Godly families cultivate genuine faith in and dependence on the Lord. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Jesus is, for the godly family, the source. Not a source, but the source. 
is the source of truth. This is why we study Scripture. We don't study Scripture just so we can recite Scripture, just so we can parrot back answers about what Abraham did. We, we study Scripture because it is our source of God's truth. It is how we define the world around us, how we understand. It is our world view. Jesus is our source of that truth. He is the source of our purpose. He is the source of our hope. For Christian families, this should be fairly obvious because we're all hoping that our children will be people of faith. We're all hoping that they will make those commitments, that they will be followers of Jesus. Churches, of course, exist for no other purpose than to aid people in being people of faith, being followers of Jesus, perpetuating that faith. But modern Christianity, and in a lot of ways our modern family models, have featured a faith without any follow. A faith that allows us to make an academic, intellectual decision about who Jesus is without actually becoming his disciples, without actually following, without actually living it. Believe in Jesus, absolutely. Depend on him? Maybe I'll depend on Jesus for what happens after I die. Depend on him now? It's kind of shocking to me, in all honesty, how hard we as believers work to avoid having to depend on the one we say we can depend on. That's our statement of faith, is that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's our deliverer, and that we can depend on him, but we'll do just about anything to avoid actually having to depend on him. And so what do we do in this world? We seek out success. We seek out fortune. So that we'll have the status and the means to not actually need Jesus. We'll tell people that Jesus can be counted on. We'll advocate that they count on him. But we'll go out of our way to make sure that we provide for ourselves. That we are our own people. For a lot of us, too much of the time we kind of fall into this trap. We think that that life is something, life is like the cake that we need to build. And faith is the icing. Faith is the icing on top of the cake, and it just that's that if we could if we could have the successful life, if we could enjoy all the things that people of the world enjoy, if we could do all the things, and we could have all the opportunities, and then we had faith too, that would be like the icing on the cake. And a lot of times what we find is we get to that point where we're ready to ice the cake, we find there's no cake. Because none of the things that we've counted on to be substantial, none of the things that we've counted on to matter actually do. Here's one of the things that we have to understand. The way is the cake. It's not the icing. Jesus is the foundational stuff of life. And so worldly acclaim and success 
if we achieve these things, that's the icing. That's the extra. That's, that's the bonus stuff. And those things often do come because living a life of morality and discipline often yields a terrific harvest. But for godly families, Jesus is first and every choice, every action reflects that Jesus is first. This is who we want to be. And even as we achieve these successes, the temptation is always, always, that we should start relying on the harvest instead of the harvest giver. Godly families respect the past, they live in the present, and they hope for the future. We live in a culture that literally worships youth. We somehow think that youth have all the wisdom, that they've figured everything out. Our young people are taught on a regular basis that all of us adults have messed things up. We are... We are racist generations who have, have burnt up the earth and we need to rescue the earth from all the terrible things that we've done to it, like exhaling all this time. We're constantly being told that we're the ones who messed everything up and they have the opportunity to set everything right. Just think for a minute about how difficult it is to parent children in a context in which Parents and grandparents are the ignorant uh, criminals on, on this planet, and children have all the inherent wisdom and knowledge. And of course, it's a lie. It's kind of a ridiculous lie. But our failure as a culture to respect the past, to respect our elders, to respect, uh, experience, and wisdom has sent the message to the upcoming generation that there is nothing eternal. Everything's about progress. Everything's about change. Everything's about the new. And there's nothing that simply is from beginning to end. There is no absolute truth. There is no absolute value. There is no absolute goodness. Everything is transient. This is a miserable way to live. We are inviting our upcoming generation to live in misery. Even if they're successful in doing the things that supposedly they're going to do to save everything, they have to spend the rest of their existence with this assumption that there is nothing permanent ever. And yet, yet, godly families must also live in the present. We respect the past, but we live in the present. I know that it has become kind of common 
as the church enters this time of incredible struggle, and we worry about who's not here and how much congregations have shrunk, and it's kind of a universal anxiety. Uh, churches everywhere are facing the same problems. I know we look at all of that, and there's that temptation, right, to think, man, if only, if only it was back like it was. If only people were still listening to the church. If only, if only it was like our glory days. Here's the problem with the glory days model of doing church. We are, whether we mean to or not, sending the message to younger generations that we are unable or unwilling to adapt to the situation at hand and therefore have nothing to offer them. That we exist to exist and we will exist until we don't anymore, until we shut our doors and there is no hope. Young people have to believe that what they're doing right now matters. We are the ones who can give them things to do that actually matter. Too many parents have simply given up trying to raise their children. Too many churches have been unwilling to adapt and unwilling to love those children uh, with reckless abandon. But if we don't believe in the power of Jesus Christ, who will? Who will? See, godly families have hope for the future. The crisis of hopelessness that we are presently facing in our culture is not a hopelessness of pandemic. It's not a hopelessness of global warming. It is a hopelessness for lack of faith. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, he says, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Here's one of the things that we really have to understand about raising our children in the way, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The way is a journey. It is not a campsite. There is no point in the past that is the superior point that we must all gravitate towards. And there is no point in the present where we are simply condemned to stay precisely where we are. It is a journey. It is always moving. Be it your household or your church, things are always moving. The journey is always progressing. If you like where you are now, Get used to the fact that things will change tomorrow. If you hate where you are now, take pleasure, take comfort in the fact that things will change tomorrow. Because we're not camping out. We're following Jesus, and Jesus is on the move. The message that we have to send to the younger generation is that some things are sacred and sacred things are eternal. They don't change on a whim. They don't change because the culture says so. They are forever. We have to send the message that what we do and how we live right now matters. 
And we have to send the message that in Christ, no matter what, there is always hope for a brighter future. Always. Because guess what? The worst case scenario for your family and for your church is that the Lord will return. That's, that's the bottom of the list. There are so many other good things that could happen because of the work that the Lord is doing. And if none of those good things happen, guess what? Jesus is still coming back and every knee will bow. Godly families offer love in the form of discipline and sacrifice. An awful lot of children today have an expectation that they will be indulged. Because they have been taught one way or another that things mean love. Often this comes from disengaged parents. Parents who are too busy with their own lives to pay much attention. And they try to compensate, to try to make up for it all at once with lavish spending and gifts and Many Christians today in our churches expect to be catered to. They are more consumers than believers because for decades we've had program-centered churches that have substituted entertainment for actual discipleship. We've created the dynamic and now we're struggling, wrestling with the outcome. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then, get this, you are not legitimate. You are not true sons and daughters at all. In other words, we tie these ideas together. Here's what, you, here's what you end up with. The fastest way to disenfranchise and exasperate our children is to offer them no discipline. Now, we have been sold a whole packet of lies that says we just need to back off and let them figure out things on their own. When we do that, we are sending the message that A, we don't have any answers, and B, they shouldn't listen to us anyway. I see a lot of uh, families that offer very little discipline, even when everyone around them recognizes that discipline is precisely what's required. And then you watch those same families try to compensate for that lack of discipline with some outburst of anger that they think is discipline, and it's not. We've all been subjected to a cultural lie that love somehow equates with indulgence. Here's the truth. The way is unconditional love, not unconditional compromise. In so many families over my years in ministry who buy into this idea 
but they can't challenge their children after they turn 18. What is magic about that? So some, uh, so they're legally adults? <laughs> I don't know about you. I know a lot of legal adults that are not adults at all. I know some legal adults in their 30s and 40s that are barely adults. We have to be prepared to offer our children, and as a church, we need to be prepared to offer children in this community our unconditional love and acceptance, but not our unconditional uh, affirmation of their choices. Those are two different things. Now, the world is constantly telling us that they're not. The world's constantly telling us if you don't, if you don't embrace everything that, that every decision that's made, every choice, every lifestyle, that you're not loving, you're hateful. The reality couldn't be more opposite. A godly family is prepared to make genuine sacrifices for their children. And here's the hard one. One of the biggest sacrifices that we may be called upon to make is to take the risk of our children rejecting us because we take a stand for Jesus Christ. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy reality to face. But it is, in fact, the most loving thing that we can do for our descendants. We will do anything, Lisa and I, we will do anything within our power for the good of our children. But we also recognize that everything they want is not necessarily for their good. We don't give them everything they want. Even, even if we could give them everything we, they want, we, we would not. And they know it. And they know it's not because we're selfish and it's not because we're holding back from them. It is because we, in fact, love them and expect them to grow in, into responsible adults, believers, people who are committed to following Jesus Christ. The most loving thing that we can do, the thing that communicates our love, the thing that has communicated God's love to us, is His willingness to make sacrifices on our behalf, but also to hold us to a standard of righteousness.